This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. On this episode of the podcast, I am teaming up with the Veterinary Career Network. The VetCan was founded in 2014 as a resource and network for individuals working with veterinary students and alumni in the area of career and professional development. To connect, the mission of the group is to connect veterinary career professionals and their institutions to encourage collaboration and the development of best practices to better serve veterinary students and the profession. So today, uh, joining me for this discussion, um, and I will tell you all about what we're going to get into in just a bit, are Amanda Bates from North Carolina State University's College of Veterinary Medicine and Amanda Fark from the Ohio State um, University's College of Veterinary Medicine. And our topic today is what does it mean to look professional. So this topic emerged about six months ago when a few students approached AAVMC staff about gendered language embedded in some of the college's dress codes, i.e. women will wear, should wear this, men will wear this, and what challenges this may pose specifically for students who identify as trans or non-binary. And so after some um, initial conversations um, among staff, we noted that this is really a larger, much larger issues related to how we understand beauty standards and expectations around presentations that are gendered, racialized, they're influenced by religion, they're influenced by socioeconomic background, all kinds of things. And also, you know, this is also related to our freedom of self-expression and how do we present um, to the world. So if you are not sure still what we're talking about. Let me break it down for you. Does this mean no pink hair, <laughs> no tattoos? <laughs> what about individuals who are gender fluid? Are they expected to adhere to certain uh, specific gender dress codes? And then what about things like braids and locks and twists and extensions? And who gets to decide what is appropriate? So now for folks that do not get a chance to sit down and watch the video version of this podcast, in the interest of full disclosure, my hair is currently purple. I wear it natural, <laughs> the way that like it literally grows out of my head. And I have a number of low-key but visible tattoos. So there's that. <laughs> so if you're wondering kind of where I stand on this issue, <laughs> take that information for what it's worth. <laughs> so with that intro to the topic, I want to give the Amandas a chance to themselves and talk a bit about VetCan before we dive into our subject matter today. So we're going to start alphabetically and start with Amanda Bates. Tell us about yourself. So I just want to thank you, first of all, Lisa, for giving us both a platform to come here and chat. Uh, I'm laughing at your full disclosure because for those who can't see me, I've got my hair in braids I don't have visible tattoos, but (laughs) but they are there. For those of you who are listening in, my name, once again, is Amanda Bates. I am the Director of Career Services and Professional Development at NC State's College of Veterinary Medicine. It's a super long title, but 
as you can imagine from part of it, it isn't just helping students with their career management and development goals, but a lot of it is discussing professional identity, what it means to be an employee, a worker, an entrepreneur, and, and really functioning in the world of work. And so I am super excited about this topic that I know that we're going to dive in in a second, but I, I definitely have some ideas in terms of what's happening, especially as we see a generational shift in the work world in general. Amanda? <laughs> yeah. And don't forget to tell us, Amanda, like, you know, listeners. <laughs> well, I guess I need to share that I have tattoos too that are, <laughs> I think we're all, all on the same page. Yeah. But I am Amanda Fark. I work at Ohio State. I'm the Director of Career Management and Professional Development. I've been here. This is my seventh hiring cycle within the veter- veterinary profession now. So, um, have have had some years to figure out what's going on in this in this profession. Uh, prior to that, I worked in the legal profession and with MBAs, so it's good to be able to compare the different nuances of the different professions. I think when we think about how we present ourselves and what we have to offer as professionals, I'm also super excited to talk about this. This is something that comes up quite a bit. We do give a large presentation at Ohio State about what to wear, but it's hard to address it to a large group because it is very individual based on your preferences and also the career path that you intend to pursue. So, yeah, Yeah. I can only imagine having come from what I think socially we expect to be a far more conservative (laughs) group um, in terms of what they're expected to show up looking like, right? Versus veterinary medicine. So let's start there then. What do we mean when we talk about specifically in veterinary medicine, professional presentation? Amanda F., I'm going to start with you. So professional presentation, it, it does matter. Unfortunately, we do make snap judgments, you know, and that's just we're biologically set up to do so. And whether that's right or wrong, we need to own that and realize how we present ourselves. We really want it to mimic how we feel on the inside. So what do we have to offer that practice or that employer or that specific career path that we're pursuing? We want to put our best foot forward to make sure that we are making sure that we are portraying the best candidate that we can be. It's different for everybody. I think that's the main point of it. And and to support what Amanda is saying, she's absolutely right. I mean, especially when you're going in as a new or a young professional, you don't have the almost the historical legacy or the bandwidth of someone who's had 5, 10, 15 years of experience. And so often what you are judged by is what people see. And, and it's funny as she was giving her bio, I started to think, you know, I came from a different space where previously I was career counseling art and design folks. Yeah. And that is the, if you want to talk on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, that's why I guess for me, certain things don't phase me because when you rock with the art and design students, ain't nothing. <laughs> you're used to the purple hair. You're not even, you're not even shocked. But I, I will say, I will say this piece. I also worked with art and design students in a conservative Muslim country. Oh. So when we talk about presentation and balancing the values of a greater community versus what your own are, there's still that tension. Um, and so I always give students the, the, the absolute baseline is just to look neat. Yeah. <laughs> so no, matter who, no matter who you are, look neat. 
And then we can kind of work from there in terms of styling and, and in your focus area. Okay, so let's get nitty gritty. What does this look like? Okay, so we, we got clean and groomed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever the groomed, and I mean, even the grooming, there's like still right. a right. very wide right. range. So I'm going to say, let's spend a moment talking about men um, or folks that identify as men. We're going to get to, to non-binary folks. And then women is, is kind of 80% of, of the students that you're probably providing some guidance to. So what do you, what do you both tell young men who are searching? Clean and groomed. Yeah. <laughs> well, Thinking about hygiene, too, I've even had employers say they look at fingernails because that that matters as well. Yeah. So, you know, groomed for men, it's you can have a beard. That's perfectly fine. Just make sure it's kept. Same with your hair. It's just make sure that it's neat. I think those are the basic guidelines. Make sure that your clothes aren't crumbled. Um, mm-hmm. Frankly, I, that's employers have noted that that's something that is a turnoff for them, whether they're interviewing I don't think a full suit for a small animal practice is absolutely necessary. I always encourage students to call beforehand and say, I'm preparing for my interview that's upcoming. This is what I plan to wear, whether that be scrubs or a suit, would that be appropriate? And just asking upfront so you can alleviate any of that anxiety, that pre-interview jitters that you may have about not knowing what the expectations are. Mm-hmm. You know, I say similar things and often I will tell, and, and to be fair, I tell this to male identifying and female identifying students is be observant when you go into practices to see how people dress. And when you're going in for interviews, we often say around here, go what's a, a, a level higher for what's typical of your focus area. Yeah. So, you know, small animal is going to look a little bit different if, especially if you're going on a working interview than large animal, right. And, and, or research or somewhere else. And so it's, and and I know it sounds a little squishy, but I talked to a couple of vets and I go, you know, I don't want to tell all the students to dress in a certain A, (laughs) but then it doesn't fit for their, their environment. You know, they're going to do equine and it just doesn't work for them to wear what they would wear in another space. Amanda, I don't know if you find the same thing with the students you're working with. Yeah. And that's why I think it's difficult to have those, those wide ranging presentations because there is so many different career paths and showing up to a food animal interview in heels and a skirt suit right. would be completely inappropriate. And that's an extreme example, obviously, yeah. but you need to show up, especially in a working interview, prepared to work regardless of what that career path yeah. would be. So do either of your schools have dress codes for DBM students? To my knowledge and full disclosure, I got here in August. No, but I do know that the college has worked really hard, especially in the last few years. And, you know, with my predecessor and some other folks here to really help professionalize, if that's the word, mm-hmm. the student's presentation. And so I can say as someone who stepped in into this role in the fall, even at events that our students have been at, where employers have been there, I can definitely see that they are dressing in ways that I feel is appropriate for the environment. Yeah, at OSU, I know for the clinics, there is a certain standard yeah. about making sure that you're covered when you bend over and things like that. And I do believe that we have guidelines for hair and cut in color, I think. 
as an exist. <laughs> so let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> because, okay, so, if, um, so you know, uh, about a year and a half ago, I went to go visit a school. Um, and yes, my hair was purple at that time, too. It's been a number of different colors. And I showed up and um, the associate dean was so kind. I was going to give a student presentation. And, and, you know, he leaned in and said, by the way, we have a dress code and like our students can't dye their hair that color. I was like, Oh, he was like, yeah, we don't, we don't think that the people in the surrounding area would be cool with that. We don't think employers are cool with that. It's, you know, but you're good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm already here <laughs> and it's still purple. Right. But, <laughs> but it was a really interesting moment. And I, you know, and I, I started my presentation going, Oh, I hear I'm not dress code appropriate for, you know, <laughs> how y'all get down at this institution. So so tell us a little bit about why there are, I guess, um, some dress code expectations around color. Yeah, I think it honestly comes from the perception that their clientele won't appreciate it. I don't know if there's ever been any kind of actual survey or hey, let's see what they actually think. I think it's just mainly whether it's practices or institutions making that decision, they just believe that their clientele think that. Mm -hmm. And I I would imagine ideologically, there's a more conservative perspective around those who are in health and medical professions, right? And I'm not saying conservative in a political way, but in terms of- Presentation. Right, in presentation. and, and, And there's a certain- aura or prestige that I would imagine historically have been tied to these roles. And so if we think about how long the profession's been around, it's probably a relatively recent thing that we're seeing folks express themselves that are different than what historically has been the case. When I look around campus, it's, if we're talking about color, there isn't there isn't a whole lot of diversity of color, at least as far as our DVM students are concerned. You know, I think that's just part of the, you know, part of the culture of of what it's been. Mm-hmm. It'd be really interesting to have discussions to see what would happen if we have a student who decides bright blue is the day because they just love bright blue. But it's not too common around campus. Mm-hmm. We actually have quite a few students that have colored it. And since I've been here, it's increased. And I think it's because in society, we just see it more, too. I think it's a lot more accepted than even five years ago, what it was. Mm, Absolutely. You guys see the same? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and I think that it's also important for folks to to realize in terms of thinking about some of these, I think about it in terms of of balances and scales, right? So 20 years ago, I did not do this. (laughs) Right, right. Right. And part of it was because I felt that pressure of expectation around my presentation a lot more than I care about the pressure around my presentation right. now. Right. Yeah. I don't care as much because one, I'm older and you tend to care less about a lot of things as right. you age. And two, I also have a body of work. Right. So I think that, so so do you ever counsel students or or job seekers kind of on that, that balance of how do you, how do you balance that authenticity and care freeness (laughs) with you need to find a job? (laughs) You know, I, I think with our, with the fourth years who are coming through right now, 
it is becoming more of a, of a conversation. This is my first cycle. And really, I always tell students, here's the deal. You're going to shape what your career looks like. You have to understand you are a new professional in this space. And to a certain degree, you've got to, what, what's the phrase that we always say? I guess you've got to like prove your worth. Mm. Oh, and, and, and show, regardless of the packaging, I can do what it is that you need me to do. Now, I think this is where interviews are really helpful, to be perfectly honest, because I always tell them it's not just them finding a match for employee. It's you finding a match. It's like dating. Everyone's trying to figure out, do we want to be in this partnership for the long haul? I don't really like you. <laughs> Let's do that. But, but really... You know, I say be observant because I think if you're also observant when you're doing an interview, it can answer a lot of questions in terms of the type of practice and place that you want to be. If you see what the staff looks like, if you get a chance to ask them questions, I think that you will get, you'll probably get a little bit more information about how much latitude you have in terms of if you feel like you want to express yourself in a certain way. So that's what I'm seeing at least, or at least how I'm coaching them. Yeah. I think along with that, being authentic means that you're being true to yourself and you're also trying to find a place of employment that appreciates that too. It's got to be a great marriage, like you said, Amanda. So telling students that, you know what, what are your, I guess, your non-negotiables, right? So if they don't believe in how you wear your hair or how you present yourself or what your personal values are, that's probably not the practice for you. For you, Absolutely. And yeah. right now it's the market you can, you are free to choose where you want to go and have their values align with yours. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that that certainly those interviews are, are really important. Kind of that understanding, we were talking before the show a little bit about the employer's <laughs> presentation and how they present themselves even online mm-hmm. and so understanding before you go in or as you're searching whether or not Things like whether or not a practice has certain policies and practices that are available to you, kind of understanding beforehand, that give you cues. Like, so for example, if a practice has a non discrimination policy as a part of their kind of bedrock, how they operate, that's going to give you some information mm-hmm. on how conservative or progressive they may be in terms of not only kind of how they expect you to present yourself physically, but just you know, everybody's just living their life day to day. Absolutely. Yeah. I had had a a student in the past who had an interview and this was a few years ago after the end of the day, after the meal, there was a prayer, which is fine. And that's the, how the practice believes, but it was incongruent with what where she wanted to be. So that was again, an indicator on the interview that this might not be a great long-term relationship. Yeah. Looking for those signposts, I think, are going to be really important on all of, you know, this, all of these kinds of things that you might be looking for in a job. So um, my next question is, and this is something at in my years of work at the association that we've kind of come back to just as a staff over and over again. What is business casual? Which just seems like, you know, bull in a china shop. <laughs> it's like, you know, anything except for these four things. <laughs> You know, um, is business casual different by gender identity and presentation? So, all right, Amanda, what do you think about 
<laughs> That's loaded. Which man? No. Yeah, which one? Uh, this is. I mean, OSU. Like, <laughs> what do you tell people is business casual? Because I mean, you see it on the. Hey, well, you know, our dress code is business casual. Uh, What's okay. that? Okay. What's that mean? Yeah, and I think in terms, if we think of gender expression on a spectrum, you know, it's mm-hmm. there are people who. I, you know, I identify as female, but I'm probably more in the middle in terms of how I present myself professionally. Mm-hmm. I'll wear the blazer and the, the shirt. I'm not going to wear a long, flowy dress. That's just not who I am. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it matters uh, where you fall on that spectrum. But for if we're on the male side of the spectrum, I would say, you know, dress pants, a collared shirt with or without a tie, a collared shirt with a jacket would be business casual. Females, we have a little bit more, if you identify with females, we have a little bit more leverage, dress pants or a skirt, jacket or not. It just isn't anything but a uh, matching suit or the same color. So no matching suit. (laughs) Yeah, that would be be professional. That's too far. Right. That's interview. Yeah, blazer and skirt is totally business, right? Mm-hmm. Without the blazer, maybe it's not yeah. as casual. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I was even thinking as you were describing for those who are more on the male identifying side of the spectrum, I was like, is is a tie actually business casual or is it now getting into the business? Because I could I see it tie without a jacket. Okay. It's totally business casual. Yeah. Because I was thinking I could see jacket, no tie. Yes. That would be that would be casual for sure. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's still a lot of <laughs> yeah. stuff here, right? And yeah. I think that for folks who identify as women or for folks who may identify as non-binary, there's still a pretty wide spectrum where you kind of go into Macy's or Bloomies and you're like, okay, well, there's a couple of floors of clothes. We know that... <laughs> Okay, club wear is out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Although, unfortunately, we have to tell people that club wear is out. Right. Good point. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, sorry, yeah. you said that, and I always think about, I've, in the past, have had to work with students on, you know, length of skirt, when we start talking about, you know, if they're going to wear a skirt. And as you mentioned, the club wear, I remember thinking I had a student where, I, I feel like I'm pretty... I'm not lax, but I can, I have a pretty large, like, I guess, scale of where I'm like, all right, that could work. But I I remember thinking that skirt might actually be, that's definitely for the club. I don't know if that's going to be for the interview and just where it landed. And, and even that is a matter of perspective, right. And talking with students, but I, I was just thinking, regardless of where you are, I do think there's a medium that almost everyone can do pants and a nice collared shirt or a nice top. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So male, female, somewhere, somewhere on the scale or on the, on the um, spectrum. I think that that's probably one area where I think almost everyone could do if they're comfortable, if, if you enjoy or, or don't mm-hmm. with wearing trousers. I think that that's an, that's probably an area where that's pretty business casual, regardless of who you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. And back to the club wear too. I think sometimes it's difficult for students transitioning straight out of undergrad to think right. about maybe how they thought about in the past is what looks good is when I go out. 
Mm. And it's confusing sometimes to realize, okay, what looks good professionally is not what it was, you know, when I was going out to the club. So sometimes it's hard for students to figure out, okay, what height of my heel is appropriate? What absolutely is appropriate? (laughs) That kind of thing. Yeah. And also kind of striking that balance between kind of looks good and functional, right? Right. As I get older, (laughs) looks good and functional, the heel is slowly (laughs) (laughs) decreasing. So that's like, like, is key <laughs> functional. Yeah. Well, like, slowly like merging into Clogville. <laughs> well, and you know, Amanda, I think you also you were touching on it, but I think it's also taking us to where this all fits culturally. Mm-hmm. Because students come from such a variety of backgrounds, right? So even thinking about what looks nice, I for a long time, I worked with um, high need first generation students, right? And so, even talking about what professional business fashion, especially if you haven't necessarily been around folks who do quite a few, particularly, I was gonna, I'm just going to say in this case, white collared work, mm-hmm. you necessarily know what the cultural norms are for how you dress because you just haven't had that exposure. And I think that that can sometimes be a challenge for students as well. They're like, well, this is the nice thing, nicest thing I have, but understanding that it's appropriate for, you know, a research position or a food animal position or small animal where they're going. Yeah. So I think that this cultural piece is really so important and kind of where people come from and, and whether or not they've had exposure to things. Right. And so so that's where you kind of say, oh, well, I have this bright colored suit, but it's it's a suit, so therefore it's appropriate. Or I have a skirt or a pair of slacks that are animal print, veterinary medicine, check the box. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. That's amazing. Yes. (laughs) You know, this fits. Why wouldn't it fit? Like it's animal print and I'm going to go interview at this school. So, and we're not suggesting that those things are wrong, but I think that there's a cultural piece of, understanding that how people see a a culture from the outside can be very, very different than what the reality is kind of living and breathing within that, within group, right? So one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking, I was thinking about for, and this is not every African-American community, but you may have some African-American communities where, you know, people, they are in, Christian communities where people dress up is where they go to church, right? And so as you were talking about the suits, I'm thinking about just in my own growing, (laughs) right? Some of the suits that I saw that the men wore that may have been brighter, right? But it was was in the context of that subculture, that community, you know, and, and, and typically people when they, when they, when they, when they wear their Sunday's best. Yes. It is great in that context because that's it's an understood we understood in the mores. And if if you're a student for the first time who let's say you and I'm just using this as an example, but you kind of come out of that community and that's the only time you saw someone, yeah, especially you know, folks who identify as men in suits, right? And it's the it's a it, it could be maybe a brighter color than is accustomed to some professions, maybe a little bit quote unquote loud. That may be the suit that you have because grandma or ma gave it to you to wear for church and you only wore it on special occasions and getting an interview 
is a special occasion. And so I think it, to your point, I think there's a lot that we can't assume what students know because if we don't have an understanding of their cultural context and where they came from. You know, there are things that we can make assumptions that they know. You know, we know in certain sectors, blue or black, right? Or, you know, we, we know that those are the colors we're probably going to wear a suit. Tan can be controversial, <laughs> even if you're president. Right. The Obama tan suit causes right. a lot of drama. A lot of drama. Showing your arms can be controversial, even mm-hmm. if you're baby and you're wearing a otherwise conservative dress. And so I think not having assumptions about where students are coming from and talking to them what this what the perceived baseline is for where they're going into super important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's so, I mean, you know, I think that I grew up in Richmond and a lot of people know that there was a store when I was growing up called Cavaliers. And that is where mostly, I mean, the city back then was pretty segregated, still kind of is, but it was mostly African-American and, and, and white. And, but Cavalier was not where white men shopped. And the suits were, I loved going by the windows. It was like our Macy's and it was like bright colored suits. When I say bright, like yellow, orange, like when I say blue, I mean royal blue. Right. Tie, matching shirt, matching, match, match, match. But again, there was this context that one, and and that was for men. For for women, there was also, you know, these great these great places with very bright colored suits and dresses and hats. And and there's a whole tradition, certainly within um, for African American kind of church dress, right? That, you know, is very bright, very colorful, very lively um, incident, you know, and and heels and the whole bit. And, but for many of us, our church clothes were, church clothes were our dress clothes and our dress clothes then became our professional clothes. So then when we showed up (laughs) and those very bright, lively colors into a different cultural sphere, it was kind of shocking, yeah. right? You yeah. kind of bump, you, there's a, a cultural kind of bumping that happens. Right. Probably sometimes doesn't go very well. Yeah. Right? No, I, I, I agree with you. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's part of knowing how to navigate the spaces that you're in. It's like learning a language, right? Learning the language of, as a professional in the vet world, this is what's seen as standard, if you will. But then when I go home or where I'm somewhere else, that you're shifting. And it's it's I think it's hard. And and it isn't just I gave that example, obviously, because I'm I'm speaking particularly to an African American experience, because that's probably what I'm most familiar with, as well as a general black and African experience. But if you think about all of our students coming from different cultural contexts, right? We talk about gender identity and it, it does become how do I present in the way I want to present and still be accepted for what I can bring to the table? Yeah. Yeah. Striking that balance between being true to yourself and fitting into your environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would also say that, you know, this whole kind of professional presentation is a type of code switching as well. Yeah. Right. So we talk about code switching in terms of oftentimes language, kind of the way that you speak on the phone. <laughs> Or in business spaces, I usually say my telephone voice versus, you know, how I speak at home with my family 
or my yeah. friends. Um, yeah. Far more vernacular, far more relaxed. I drop consonants and vowels and all of those kinds of things, right? Punctuation, all kinds of things. And so, but there's a, a code switching that's also potentially necessary in in your professional presentation as well. And trying to figure out what that language is that allows you to fit in, but not so much that you lose yourself. Yeah. I was going to say that, I mean, and the funny thing is we all do it. I think that for maybe certain groups, you're just a little bit more aware that you do it because it's one of it is a, this has a negative connotation, but it's really, I really don't mean to have a negative conversation, not connotation, but some of it is assimilation. <laughs> you have to be able to function in the space and subculture you're stepping into. And part of it is, you know, a bit of a, a, bit of a protection as well. Yeah. And, and to say, well, I don't really know you that well in this space. And so that part of me is not necessarily going to come out until I understand that this is a safe space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think it is really important. It's not, this is not just a, it's certainly not a Black thing. I think that, mm-hmm. that um, our Latino colleagues, um, our Latinx colleagues experience it, our LGBT folks experience it in the way that they kind of self-identify with respect mm-hmm. to to gender identity, but also just in terms of their just their personal presentation, right? Mm-hmm. And so re- there's a religious context here mm-hmm. about, and then just kind of the socioeconomic status. I know mm-hmm. that I have certainly been to many places where a nice pair of jeans, um, or you know what used to be like the the country the country you know Wrangler, which incidentally I saw Wrangler on sale like on a one line, but Wranglers are expensive now. Like I. Would, Yes, yes, they are. They're <laughs> like now, like a brand, like a really brand, right? And so, but there was a this, you know, you put on your nice boots, you put on your nice jeans, and you put on, you know, a nice plaid shirt, but you know, and that is well, talking about yeah, socioeconomic status and even language, there is a, a difference to how I talk and, and present. Then I come from a small rural farm town in Ohio. And if I were to talk the same way that I do in that presentation at, at home or with my friends from that area, they, it, what are you doing? You're putting on airs or you're, you know, it's just, it's different. And I think, like you said, whether it's racial or socioeconomic, we all come from somewhere. And then what are we going to present ourselves in that professional setting? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a question and we can talk, I've certainly got a few more questions, but we've been talking about kind of like the bright colors and how do people learn these things and they're stepping in and out of groups. So I told you both, I was going to ask you this question. This is like my burning <laughs> question. How do folks know, and by folks, I typically mean white men know about the blue blazer, khaki, ubiquitous, <laughs> because... I, again, I grew up and what I understood at the time to be kind of business clothes was more aligned with like, these are your church clothes and this is what you wear. And um, and nobody ever wore a navy blue blazer or a khaki pants. And I have <laughs> traveled around the world. I've mentored many students of color. And it is in- incredibly rare for me to come across <laughs> men of color or male presenting folks of color who sport the blue blazer with gold buttons. <laughs> And yeah. the Gatsby Ensemble. So what's going on with that? Yeah. Because, you know, I wish, I almost wish, I mean, I'm assuming that the the 
women's uh, or women presenting equivalent is like a little black dress, but, but help me with the blue blazer situation. Yeah. Well, I must admit when you post, when you first said it, I had to take a step back and cause it must be my, my white bias probably coming through me like, Oh, I didn't even notice it, but yeah, it totally <laughs> is that way. And so I did put some um, thought into, and I really think it may come from maybe the parochial, mm-hmm. right, but that's a uniform that white schools tend to use, get K through 12, the mm-hmm. pants and then a Navy blazer. And then other white males may see it and say, you know what, that's safe. It's good to go with. And it's, it's easy. Maybe I don't, I beyond that. I'm not sure. I think it's how they grew up and, mm-hmm maybe wore it to attend school. I, I think Amanda's on to something because if you look at a lot of the independent private schools, especially if you if you think about the history, if we just keep it to the US, many of them are in New England in the North, right? Mm-hmm. And they were the ones who were in positions of power and influence, at least in the founding of the country. And that kind of inspired. And I think that that became a uniform. I think another big thing that happens subconsciously that we don't often think about is media. We see it. We see it all the time. If you if you pay attention to anything in this world, you start to notice that it shows up like it doesn't matter what the thing is. And if you look at what we see in movies. If you look at what we see on television in certain scenarios, if we look at what we see at certain conferences, if you have access to that, you will see that there are certain uniforms that show up. And so intuitively, it makes sense. If, if, if you see someone, especially if someone looks like you, mm-hmm. and they dress a certain way, right? You become really interested in dressing because that person looks like you. I mean... I'm thinking all the time, you know, Rihanna came out with Fenty, right? And then right. all of a sudden everyone's like, oh my gosh, I got to get, I don't, was it the bronzer? It was something that she was using. Well, all these women of color, and honestly, I think there were some white women in there too, who were just like, I love, I love Rihanna. She's using this bronzer and everybody wanted to look a certain way. I mean, if you look at, I, I hate that I'm going to bring them up, but the Kardashians, right? <laughs> that contouring thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, everybody was contouring, right? Yeah. And so that just tells you the power there is in subliminal messages that we pick up. And if I, I'm thinking about when I was just, when I was younger, and this will probably date me, but what were the movies that were around that maybe represented this? Okay. Oh, I know. What is that movie with Robin Williams and everybody? Dead Poet Society. Ah. Yep. Blue Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> it, it came out in 1989, 1988, maybe. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? Like, just that's just one movie off the top of my head that I could think of where that was a movie that a lot of people saw. There, there, there were other messages in yeah, it. We sure. get from from popular culture a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. Just like kind of how the academics get the tweed jacket, kind of. Right. Kind yeah. of <laughs> right. It's a movie. But I mean, it is. It is. It is. It, that has always been one of my like (laughs) things and so folks will laugh at me I'm okay with that like it's just because I feel like there was a time in my life where I just I I still where does this come from I see this hanging in the people and and like I have colleagues down the hall who have a like like it's their like backup plan there's a jacket jacket. (laughs) I have a go-to outfit I see it all the time, but, but Lisa, think about the flip side. So 
we had we didn't touch on it as much, but if you think about tattoos and piercings, yes. Now we start to see more and more folks in the vet profession where, oh, you know, my vet has a, and they're they're there, but you know, more vets have a nose piercing. I think we were past the phase. This was college for me, you know, the eyebrow and the tongue and all that was one point. But do you know what I mean? Or we start to see more visible tattoos, right? I think it'll become sort of the same thing that as, as the profession goes down the road, those things no longer are standouts because it's just so prevalent or common, if you will. So, yeah, I think that that body modification issue is, is, I mean, I think it, you know, just very broadly body art, body modification is certainly, you know, we're looking at a generation that's, that's far more into it. Right. We had, so it's, it's almost like it skipped a generation or, or so maybe two. So, so there was, you know, the world war two greatest generation who came back, and on their arms and all of this kind of carrying on. Um, and then, you know, we saw the the boomers and then we now have Gen Xers who certainly were getting a lot more into body art and body modification. But millennials and um, this kind of Gen Z, we see them like really, really, really into it. And um, so how do you see how our employers telling you like, whoa, <laughs> tell them to stop hitting the parlor? I think it really depends on the the generation of the employer and mm-hmm. yeah. so more seasoned employers that I, I work with. And it tends to be white males too. And I'll just say that honestly, they tend to be a little bit more picky when it comes to certain body art, hair color, that type of thing. Generations that are younger, the, they tend to be more open and accepting and don't see it as a something that their clientele are going to judge or that it's going to be a detriment to that person doing their job. And that's just, I think, how it shakes out generationally from what I see with employers. And I think the the more the employee or the practice has more of this body of work, especially as we see people going to online for reviews and whatnot, I think that that's gonna trump in a lot of cases from a, from a, patient, you know, from a client standpoint, you know, yeah, she's got, you know, she's got a, her nose pierced and she's got visible tattoos. But if there are a hundred reviews on Yelp that say this particular person is the best vet in Boise, Idaho, <laughs> I think that that's where really online in some cases will trump whatever, whatever you see. I mean, I, I don't think we'll ever see this in vet vet, but I've, I'm really increased with the number of um, face tattoos that are showing up in the general population. <laughs> and I don't think we'll ever see it, but um, I, was, I was just amused. I was in the mall and this guy had exactly half his face tattooed and I'm still, <laughs> I'm still trying to process what that looks like in the work. Cause you know, the career counselor in me is like, I need to understand where you work and how this works <laughs> because it was like exactly half his face was done. I was like, all right, I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah. Admittedly might be a line for me. Right. <laughs> right. You think you don't have a line and then you're like, no, I got one. No. <laughs> I do think that, 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 that kind of, you think you don't have a line. Like I think that there may be also employers who are like, no, no, I'm really, <laughs> Whoa, hold on. Why am I waiting for that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a part of that generation, too, is that they say millennials really are more about treating people as individuals. 
Yeah. And I think individual expression is just something that it's it's not shocking to us that somebody yes. would, you know, yeah. have a face tattoo. Yeah, we might say, wow, where do you work and what content? <laughs> right. Yeah, but it's not, it wasn't something that you probably just stared at and um couldn't, <laughs> you know, just like, right. do you? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, exactly. Yeah. I was like, seriously, do you? That is amazing. Did that hurt? That's all that I care about. Yeah. 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 It does bring up lots of questions. So, (laughs) a little bit about how do you go about coaching folks? What are some of the programs that you do? Certainly, I know that there's a whole continuum of of kinds of different kinds of coaching that you do. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, as we wrap up. But specifically around kind of presentation, I'm sure you don't have time to kind of get as in depth. And, and even then this conversation hasn't gone as deep as I'd like it to, because we might have to go whole <laughs> <laughs> conversations just about the my, Lisa's fascination with the blazer, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but especially like at OSU, you've got 165, 170 students a year. That's like a lot mm-hmm. of people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so we do a dress for success event that leads up to the Midwest Veterinary Conference to teach students, okay, this is what a professional conference is like. This is what you can expect from it. Um, And we have actual two people from the OVMA come and talk. And one is a woman of color and one is a, a white male. So we try to be a little bit diversified in what we offer, but it's still, you cannot, at a large group presentation, you cannot get to the heart of it or the, the meat of really what people's questions are. So it, going back to thinking of people as individuals, um, the one-on-one coaching is really where it comes down to like, come to me with any type of questions. You can be at Macy's and wondering if this looks good on you, or if this will be a, a business casual outfit, please feel free because it's all based upon who, how you want to represent yourself. There are you know, some guidelines. And like we said, some of them are kind of blurry, but um, it's being true to yourself, but then also making sure that you're presenting yourself professionally in the environment. Um, And I I would say pretty similar at NC State, you know, across the board, individually, the students always like, if they have questions, they come in and they're like, look, this is what I'm thinking about wearing. (laughs) And I was like, you know what, if you even want to bring in the outfit, (laughs) like, Let us look at the outfit because at least, you know, I have a baseline of this is what you're thinking and we can talk through why you think this is a good fit and how to make decisions going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would imagine, you know, my role and similar to Amanda's is we're trying to get the students at a starting point, but we look at their career development as a lifelong thing. And so when they, when they're out there and they don't have us, we want them to be able to know how to make the appropriate decisions based on the information they have. Um, you know, I our CDC here has Dress for Success and, and other, I would say, uh, initiatives related to clothing. And really, I'm hoping in the fall to partner with them a little bit more to do stuff on our side of campus. I know that when we bring in employers for whatever reason, particularly in our business selectives, sometimes they'll talk about presentation and, and talk about what they think is appropriate depending on their focus area. But, you know, I, I suppose to make life easier, I might want to put a video series, but then my, my fear is that the moment you put it together, it will immediately change. And all of a sudden something <laughs> will be out of date. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, 
So I have this like fantasy that there's like this magic Instagram of like, here's what's, here's what's a real You should totally, you know what though? You have just hit on something. I actually, (laughs) (laughs) that's my project. (laughs) Oh my God, Instagram, yeah. So you can just kind of scroll through and say, okay, that's okay. Or, you know, here's some of the best clinic shoes or, you know, all those kinds of, you know. Things I was fascinated with Amanda when you said you know that the, the nails thing and of course everybody should have clean nails but at the same time I know a lot of large animal practitioners and I have actually gone to meetings where they you know delivered some animal <laughs> the night before <laughs> got cleaned up as much as they thought they did and hopped a plane and like we're sitting in a meeting and there was like you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of clinging to a nail or whatever. And you know, it's you know, it's 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 especially with students being in rotations and interviewing and all of these kinds of things and trying to figure out how to make it juggle, stuff stuff happens, right? Yeah, Yeah, there's the real part of the profession and you know that that it happens. Yeah. And also how do we want to present ourselves in an interview, you know, probably a little bit more meticulous about yeah grooming. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that nail brush by the (laughs) well that that brings up a good point too with uh pet hair and sure you have your lint brush. I mean, working with other professions, we've always you know, you stated that, but especially in the veterinary profession, obviously, uh, pet hair can be something that we need to make sure we're checking before an interview or oh my presentation or something. <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wrap up by talking a little bit about vet can. Sure. So, yeah, Amanda Park. Yeah. So there's eight of us now. We started out a small little group and we keep expanding as more institutions keep adding our roles. And Amanda hit on it earlier. We are career professionals. And what we do is we help people decide what they want to do with their degree and then how do they get there. And so everything that encompasses that from professional presentation, resume, interviewing, branding, all of that is what we help uh, coach them with. And so we said, let's get together. And instead of being little silos and trying to build our own programs, let's share our resources um, because it's very similar, even though there are differences on geography. But yeah, that's essentially what we've, our goal is to collaborate, communicate, and really be a team. Awesome. So I foresee um, there's certainly a number of topics, I think, where there's the intersection of diversity, inclusion and job hunting and career counseling. So I'd love to have you and your colleagues back to kind of explore some of these things, because I think that that these are are things that are are real um, issues that are I mean, this code switching in general. So it's not just applicable to to clothing or presentation, but language and even kind of when you are in interviewing in a different region, because certainly there are different different cultural norms in different regions of the country or the world, if you're um, looking for a job internationally, that, you know, you 
probably need to think about, but also for folks that are already out in the field who are kind of wrestling with their self-presentation, their authenticity, kind of, again, you might have a body of work. Is this now the time where I can dye my hair purple for me? (laughs) (laughs) This is my full-on midlife crisis where (laughs) dyeing my hair different colors and wearing brighter colors. So, you know, but these are things that I think people don't talk about as much this particular intersection. So I'm certainly looking forward to a partnership of, of doing some more shows that kind of tease through some of this. So if our listeners or viewers have diversity topics that kind of really intersect that issue of, of diversity and job hunting and employment and hiring, then I definitely would uh, encourage you to send me an email at lgreenhill at aavmc.org or certainly reach the folks at VetCan to encourage us to explore some of those issues. So this has been another episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to subscribe, hit the like button and all of that good stuff. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. You can also find us online on Facebook at AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air's Facebook page, where we post the show and other great information around diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession. So to my guests, the Amandas, <laughs> thank you so much for taking time out to do the show. So where can your students find you? Because we all know that even though you probably send out a gazillion emails to these populations, they're like, I wonder where that office is or how to get in touch with well, if you're at NC State at, at the College of Veterinary Medicine, I they will know where this is. I am in the student services section. But more importantly, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, you can email me at A-N-B-A-T-E, no S, at ncsu.edu. And I'm here. Awesome. And I'm located in the Dean's Suite of the Veterinary Medicine Academic Building at Ohio State. But um, anybody from any institution is free to email us. And we can throw it out to the larger VetCan group with any types of questions. Really, that's what we're here for is to support those institutions that don't have somebody like us, too. And my email address is fark.9 at osu.edu. Great. Thank you. And so you can also find information about VetCan on AAVMC's website. We'll put a link to the um, page on our show notes. So this has been another episode of DNI on air at AAVMC. Thank you again to my colleagues and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> mm-hmm.